Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Joanna Bryson, an expert in machines and artificial intelligence from the Department of Computer Science, explores the role and nature of synthetic emotions in intelligent machines. We are very fortunate indeed to uh, welcome our speaker this evening. She uh, handles a subject of absolutely red-hot actuality um, and having come from all sorts of strange parts of the world which I haven't asked her about she seems to be very much of our bath uh, furniture now and it's a thrill to have her I've been up in the university just yesterday morning meeting with one of our very bright sparks um, who does uh, reprap it's called 3D printing with hot metals and all kinds of stuff you may be aware of him I don't know um, and Bath is a buzz with bright people particularly in the department of concerns AI our speaker I asked her what it was that got her into AI she was fascinated by little animals and insects and then found herself to be rather good at programming so when you're good at something it's a good idea to do it and that's what she got into. She has a, a very rich uh, record of studies through which she went, covering a large geographical area. Edinburgh, I won't tell you all the degrees, Harvard Cognitive Evolution Laboratory, and then uh, Evolution and Cognition Research in Altenberg in Austria, and then uh, the Data Institute of the University of Nottingham, and the Department of Anthropology at the University of Oxford, uh, taking her back to animals and different types of beings. Uh, we are very fortunate to have uh, uh, Dr. Joanna Bryson to be with us this evening. It'll be a red-hot lecture. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you very much for uh, that nice introduction, and also uh, thanks, of course, to uh, the press office for inviting me uh, along to talk to you. And thank you all for coming uh, out to hear about robots. Um, well, let's go ahead and get started. I, if you uh, if you came, then you have, probably have a lot of questions about why anybody would even think we'd want emotional robots, let alone think we might need them. So I'm going to actually give you an outline that uh, might not be what you thought you'd get at first. I'm going to spend some time talking about what emotions are before we can talk about uh, whether or not we need them in our robots. Then I'll talk about whether or not we can build them into a robot. Then we'll start talking about the real heart of the question, which is whether or not we want the robots in our homes. So, so you can kind of guess that, that I already think we can, or else I wouldn't have this as the whole third part of my talk. Um, and then finally, I'm going to close up with something that people always, I shouldn't say always, don't always think enough about, about their own research, which is what are the long-term societal consequences if we do have emotional robots in our homes? All right, so I better get going. I have way too many slides. I'm like that. Um, and as I said, since I only have about 50 minutes, I'm going to be really brutal. I, I have a liberal arts degree, but, but I'm not going to show that here at all. Um, 
and this is something people don't always realize. Emotions are the original form of intelligence, and it's still the core of human intelligence and animal intelligence. It's, and I'm, you're not going to believe that when I first tell you that. A lot of people think, oh, emotions are irrational, and they're, they're the bad part. They're not part of intelligence. But I hope in the next few slides I'll convince you of this. The um, intelligence is an evolved system that lets us change our behavior quickly, okay, in contrast to uh, the way plants do it. And um, the goal of intelligence, again, I'm being very brutal here. I, I know that it sounds like I'm not caring about art, but this is only the, the short version. The basic goal that, that, uh, that evolution will have selected for is getting the right thing done at the right time. Okay? So if we accept that this is what we're trying to do, <coughs> that we're trying to get the right thing done at the right time, then we can get into thinking about emotions as part of what's happening in an intelligent system. All right? So before I go into robots, or even animals, let's start really, really simple. Um, what, what are the options? If you're alive, what kind of behavior can you have? Now, I don't know. I, probably a lot of you can recognize. Can you see this? It's a bean. And you know what beans do, right? They climb up these poles, right? Have you ever had a plant in your house that you came home? I had a Hoya once. And you'd come home and it moved a meter, the, the tendrils. Isn't that a little weird? I, I'm, I'm going to, th this one is fantastic. This video I got from uh, Anthony Travavis. You guys who are from Wales probably can pronounce that better than I did. Uh, sorry about that. But he's a fantastic guy who uh, you might want to look him up on the web. He's in Edinburgh now, um, who, uh, who gave a brilliant talk on plant cognition over in Bristol a few years ago. Uh, and I happened to be invited to the same meeting, and I was really lucky to be there. So I don't know if you can see this. Uh-oh. Do you see this little tendril coming out? Can you just barely see it? Can we get it any darker? In the front here, maybe. Oh, well, see, do you can see it coming out now? Actually, notice this plant too is looking for the light. It's sort of stretching around. There's daylight and nightlight coming. But anyway, this guy, Anthony Trevelyan, does this fantastic uh, David Attenborough thing. It's the, the the vine seeks its prey and it smells it now. And here it goes, and it's attacking, and it lunges, and yes, it has the it has got the plant. Yes, it, the, that's his thing up there. The daughter smells its host. Uh, that's, a, that's a direct quote from his uh, slide. So anyway, these, this is all done with no neurons, but with part of the same things that animals have. They still have a way to sense, as it says, when he calls these uh, volatiles, he means basically smells. So the plant is giving off smells, maybe to drive away insects or something, and the other plant is exploiting that system and is moving along that trajectory, just as this plant had been uh, looking for sun. Okay. This is another really interesting organism. It's, it's basically a bacteria. It's a single-celled organism. And yet, when, when the going gets tough, it can turn into something that acts a lot like a slug. And it can crawl around and try to find a better place. And then when things get really bad, it uh, makes itself into basically a fungus, and it, it has spores. So a whole bunch of little cells like that organize themselves in this way with no neurons whatsoever. All right? So... That, maybe I should have said that that's the most basic kind of intelligence, but it's not really the core of our intelligence. The core of our intelligence, well, us, animals which have multiple cells, animals with, with very small uh, animals with, with just a few cells, but not even neurons yet, already have things that in us are neurotransmitters. Okay, very basic neurotransmitters that do things like excitement and depression. Those are the most basic emotions. 
So I know we want to think about you know, love or something. There's really not much about love here <laughs> in the entire talk. We're going to talk about the basic emotions, uh, about how do, you, uh, how do you organize your behavior. And, and basically why you need these is you need to communicate to the other cells in the organism. Uh, our consensus is that right now it's a really good time to act urgently. Or our, our consensus is that we seem to be injured or something. Maybe we should just sort of withdraw and, and heal and give some time, let some time go by. Or we're just business as usual, right? So that, that's the really basic driving thing. So now let's think about, let's think more about vertebrates. So uh, if, if you suddenly run into a tiger uh, as you go out the store, um, there's several different things that go on. You have a very fast, uh, comp you, you quickly look at this thing and you say, it's a tiger. How did you do that? Your eyes, you know, sent information to your brain and you recognized that that was handled by the electrical state of your neurons. You know, a bunch of things recognize it in fire and they're communicating, that's a tiger, all right. But how did you know it was a tiger in the first place? You've probably never run into a tiger in Bath. Um, you learned about them somewhere in school, at a zoo, and you keep that information around by actual changes to your neurons, right? So that's the very long term. This is the very short term response to what you're seeing and hearing right now. This is the very long term. There's another time course that's in between that, all right? And that's where the emotions come in. So if I only thought there's a tiger here when I'm looking at the tiger, then if I ran away to run away from it, I thought, oh, it's an apple tree, and I might go to the apple tree and start eating apples. So that's bad. But that's not what happens. When I see the tiger, I don't just think, oh, it's a tiger. I think, this is bad, right? I, I have a fear response. A whole lot of things trigger my body. My whole body works differently. As I said, excitement. Um, I start burning my motor. I can run much faster than I normally could. And I don't forget about it immediately. It stays with me, maybe even after the tiger is long behind. You know, I, I keep running. And then uh, at some point, it wears off. So the chemicals sort of wear out. And then I return more towards a normal state. And I, and I can return to my normal life. It's not something I really need to remember forever. OK, maybe I probably would remember forever if I got chased by a tiger in death. But, but if most things that happen to us on a daily level, we think, OK, now I'm hungry. So you eat. You don't need to remember that. It doesn't change how you behaved. It's something that for a while it was a good thing to do. You should organize your behavior that way. But you don't need to do it forever. All right? So yeah, emotions in intelligent control. Sorry, it didn't quite fit up there. We, we worked uh, here at Bath. Uh, this is with a postdoc called Philip Rolfshagen on modeling that kind of system because we thought that artificial intelligence systems in general um, lacked this, this intermediate kind of control. It has the long, our computer systems are very good at remembering things for a long time. And they're also very good at changing states quickly, you know, responding to your, your keystrokes. But AI in general, what a lot of people forgot about the emotional system, the chemical system. So we just simulated the, the effects, of, and, and not in any great detail, at a very basic level. Um, the sort of stuff the chemical levels were doing. And I'm just going to show you, we did it in a basic simulation. This is just sort of theoretical science in a basic simulation. So don't expect to see a cute robot on the next slide. Okay, not a cute robot. <laughs> All right. So this is uh, Philip's representation of himself. And, and he's hungry and he's thirsty, so he's running back and forth. But, uh, I don't know what he's, maybe he wants protein and, and uh, carbohydrates because it's fish and chips. <laughs> but anyway, as soon as he gets a little bit of one of them, 
all of a sudden he wants the other more, and he's running back and forth. So that's the idea, if you have nothing that keeps your state, if you just say, go to the thing that's most important right now, well, just a little bit of fish makes you want to go uh, to the chips, and just a little bit of chips makes you think, well, the fish is a better idea. I forgot to say that this, this little diamond that he's calling himself, is, uh, it, the, it, it has more to life than fish and chips. It actually likes to dance. But because it's running back and forth between fish and chips all the time, it, it doesn't have any time for dancing. Now, if we put the emotion system in, the real, a really basic sort of emotion system, where we just say, if you, uh, if, you build up, if you build up enough desire for something, then we're going to flip over a threshold, and we're going to say, we're going to stay with that for a while. We're going to stay in the state of wanting chips. We're going to stay in the state of wanting fish. And we're going to stay there until it's really come down a ways. So it's going to hold on to something. In control theory, that's called a latch. So we're going to model emotions as a latch. Um, and in the end, well, I, sorry, it's sort of halfway through the video. But and he, he wasn't hungry at first. And now he spends enough time somewhere he actually does have time to do some dancing before he, before he goes back. All right. So, but this is in the situation where the fish and chips are there and they're, they're, they're infinite. Uh, the real world... And we already knew about latches, actually. This is old, old work. Everybody, I mean, it's old control theory. Your thermostat is a latch. Um, the thing is that in the real world, uh, the fish and the chips don't just stay there. You, you eat them up and they're gone. And so the latch, the thing was actually another student of mine, Hagen Lehman, pointed out that our emotion system was kind of bad because, here, I'll show you. Next slide. Um, so in this case, you could be almost done eating the chips. And because of that emotion system I told you about, you're going to keep going back to the chips anyway. See, now he had to go all the way back over there just for a second, and then he went back to the fish. All right? So that you have to sort of keep track. So it's, sometimes it's worth going, but sometimes you went a long way when you were almost full. And uh, the Hagen Lehman, the other student, we actually got him from a laboratory, uh, Michael Tomasello's laboratory at the Max Planck Institute in uh, Leipzig. So he had spent a lot of time working with uh, monkeys, and he was supposed to be simulating their social behavior, and he said, you know, Joanna, this just isn't right. This is not the way a monkey would do it. A monkey, you know, if, if the other monkey gets up and goes away, if you say you were playing together and one monkey gets up and goes away, you wouldn't necessarily chase them if you only wanted to have, like, one second more attention. So we added in something. This is, like, a really basic idea. But now it's called a flexible latch. So if something weird happens, like the fish disappears, it just reconsiders its... its uh, it just reconsiders what its goals are. So it's a pretty basic idea. Um, and, yeah, you can see that it's behaving just a little more sensibly than, than the other one was. Um, we actually did a lot of experiments. I, did I have the... Uh, yeah. We did a lot of experiments in a lot of different situations about exactly when you should reconsider your goals like that. And it turns out as soon as something unexpected happens... Um, well, here's the results. This just shows you that... Of course, if, you, if you're... So this is without the latch. This is no emotions at all. You... Um, it, you, you don't have very much, in this graph, the time here is how much time do you have to do the dancing, right? So we had no time to do the dancing, basically, um, if, if we didn't have the emotions. And if we didn't have any interruptions at all, then, then that was the best case. Obviously, you have all the time you want, all right? But given the situation that you had one, three, or five um, interruptions during your life, 
You're a lot better off in that new flexible one that I told you. Of course, it still slows you down a bit because you know, you've been interrupted. But you're, sl you're slowed down a lot less than if you were totally devoted to this one thing that you were, you were snapped into. So this turns out to be uh, a description uh, of, of the real world and of uh, real emotional state. Not, not mood, mind you, but the, if you get interrupted, you can forget where you are, and, and if you've been taking care of babies. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry, I left the variables in there. I should have fixed that. But anyway, that, that was the result of that simple little uh, diamond. So I know what you guys are all thinking. Do blue diamonds really have emotions? Was that really an emotion? I mean, come on. It was just running between circles that said fish and chips. I, I know people hate it when you call that emotions, right? Um, I, you were supposed to turn off your phone, man. <laughs> so when you talk about AI and you talk about... Um, <laughs> that he's trying to... All right, so uh, again, it's a, it's, there's no way to get it darker up the front. Can we, can we bring down the house lights just a little? Because we're going to have some more movies later. I, I don't know. Is it, is it possible to make it a little darker? Because you can't, you can't really pick this up. It, well, could, you, could you make it a little darker? Can you just, I don't know, do the house lights turn down a little bit? Yeah. Okay, well, anyway. This, you can't see this, but this is a face. But what you can see is you can see that this is a foot. All right? Now, if you look at your foot, your foot has not just five toes and, and stuff, but tons of little hairs about it that are sensing huge amounts, huge amounts of information. All right? And in fact, this particular robot walks bipedally with no brain whatsoever. All right? It's entirely just because of the, uh, the way it's structured. As long as it's on an incline, you might have seen toys like this. It can just walk down the incline purely because of its physics. Now, our legs are sort of designed that. They're designed very well, but our actual pattern generation is handled by our spine, mostly, not so much by our head. Um, so the, my, my point, you remember we're talking about emotions? If you could call this a foot, couldn't you call the thing that made the, di that made the uh, little diamond thing have enough time to dance an emotion? That's, that's my question. That's what I'm asking you to please do. <laughs> All right? I don't know if you're convinced by this. I also know you're thinking, where, where, where are the robots? This has only been like little uh, diamond-y things. So I, I, there, there will be some more robot videos soon, and I just, but there isn't any more Shakespeare. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Anyway, on to part two. So could we do that with a robot? Yes, okay. Obviously, the same system that we just built on the diamond, we could build into a robot. Um, but I'm not going to show you a robot right now. That was why you had that brief interlude. First, I'm going to show you another simulation. We will get to robots at the third part of the talk. Um, so I already, this is another thing with a PhD student here, uh, Amanda Tungi. Um, and again, thinking about emotions sort of as a kind of memory, uh, it's almost like an episodic memory, but without the content. You don't need to remember why you feel that way. You just remember that you feel that way. So I'm going to show you this as uh, an example. These are, we'll come back to the faces. So this is uh, Manu uh, as, with his own virtual reality system rendering his face. So it's one picture of him with a bunch of different, different emotional expressions on it. So we're going to pretend that uh, you just went in, say, say you work. And you just went in, you have a new job, say you worked really hard the first year, and it's time for your annual 
review. So you go in and, and your boss says, well, I want to tell you, you were fantastic, the most amazing first year. We're really impressed with the kind of work you've done, and we're happy that you turn up uh, on time all the time. I think at this point you're already starting to guess something's going bad because the boss is going on a lot. So these are the stimuli. There's a very strong positive first stimuli, a moderate second positive stimuli, a weaker third positive stimuli, you're, and then you wait for it. It says, but the company's about to go bankrupt, and we want you to work longer hours, and we're not going to give you a promotion. All right. So very big negative uh, stimuli and two moderate negative stimuli. So what do you do? Well, you could be thinking about yourself, or you could also be thinking about this robot. Uh, well, this is not a robot. This is a, just a face, but it could be on a robot, or it could be on a, on a virtual reality thing. It depends on your mood, okay? So now this, this is based on a bunch of theory. I'm not going to go into the details. But basically, a negative mood is one that he represents where the tension is higher than the energy. So you're already in a bad mood. Um, the good, and I have to explain this. So these, these yellow things with stars on the part, top is when you're, you're, so, you're happy enough to smile. So there's like the immediate response of happiness, and then there's the sort of the feeling of happiness. So this is a little, um, so he has this happy versus happiness. It's a little complicated. But, so this is where you actually get an expression where the, where the avatar makes a smile. So if you were in a bad mood to start with, you only smile at this really big piece of, of good news. And you don't even smile. Your happiness goes up a little bit, but you don't even bother smiling at the two, the two second comments. And then you, know, you were in a bad mood. Anyway. I knew it, right? And so you, you, you frown when you hear this bad news. But also, look, you're, you're, un, you're unhappy. In fact, this is anger. Your anger goes way up, all right? So now you're in a really bad mood. And this is actually going to affect your mood. If we came in, in in a good mood, okay, so here the, uh, the tension is low and the energy is high, then all three of those pieces of news, even though the little one is still making you, uh, I can point at this and I can reach it. So now even the little one still got a big happy smile off of us, and our happiness is like through the roof here. Ah, oh, this is great, I'm so happy, I can't wait to you know, call my partner and tell them whatever. Um, and then when the bad news happens, okay, this decays a little bit, but you're actually still pretty happy at the end, and you never frown. Look, there's not a single one of these sort of angry gestures. All right? And this is the neutral. I won't go, you, you can guess. That's where, uh, where, where the moderate mood. So that, that's a representation about how being in different emotional states, being in different moods, can affect what emotional state you're in, and then the emotional state affects what expression comes on your face. All right? So the same events happened in all three cases uh, because with a simulation we can do that. We can just make exactly the same thing happen. But the responses are different. Okay, maybe this looks a little more like emotions to you than uh, the blue diamond thing did. Um, and then this is just, uh, he, he also, half of his PhD, which I don't have much to do with, I don't do graphics, half of it was also trying to represent these different uh, uh, feelings on the, on the face. So up here he's supposed to be really angry. Um, and then down here, he's, he's really happy. So that's a, those are the, the expressions. All right. So I just want to point out that if you're thinking about this from the perspective of, of an engineer, of someone who builds things, then the, um, the, the okay, I just, I just said that, so I just say it. This is what's important. But um, we, this actually simplifies coding in a way. You can make the system more interesting because uh, you have this variability built into it. It's a relatively, it's not a simple system, it's a pretty complicated system, but it's relatively simple 
compared to how much time it would take to actually hand code this all for, say, a movie, if you wanted to keep getting the emotions right. And so the point is that your recent history, that other things have been having to say a character that you're talking to um, in the past can help create variability and make something more interesting. You don't know the whole stereotype of a robot always saying exactly the same thing. This allows you to have the robot saying slightly different things in different contexts, where the context was just sent about the same context, but that the, the mood has been set by the previous experience, by your recent memory. All right, I hope that wasn't too complicated and boring. Now we'll actually go on to saying, if you believe that that was an emotion, maybe, I hope, I hope I've persuaded some of you that, 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 act, that we actually have some basic emotional light control, what about putting it in our house? First of all, I want to say, well, what is a robot? A robot is something that people have made, and it changes the world. That is, it acts. Okay? I'm changing the world. Well, I'm changing the world when I move, but I'm certainly changing the world when I, when I move things around. And I'm also changing the world by talking to you. Your brains are all changing, unless there's anyone not listening at all. The rest of you, your brains are all changing because of the stuff that's coming in right now. They're not changing in the same way. Some of you are thinking different things than others, but they're all being affected by this noise that I'm making, right? So a robot is something that, does, that not only changes the world, okay, so you could say, well, you know, the lawnmower changes the world too, but it does it in response to its own perception. So it perceives something about the world, and then it decides to do something that changes the world. That's what makes it a robot, okay? So these are the robots that people sort of think they want. They, they like rescue robots that go and, and carry people out of uh, fires so we don't have to endanger firemen. Um, this is sort of a super strong robot suit that makes the person into a stronger person. Uh, and <laughs> this is what people keep thinking they want. A robot to, uh, to put the dishes in the dishwasher. All right. I, I don't know if you noticed, they, they got this working, but these are plastic dishes. Right? <laughs> okay. All right. So... Um, but the weird thing about this is that, uh, really, the, the ones you bother to buy are the dishwashers. I mean, this is, of all these robots, these are the ones that sold the best. Now, is this really a robot? It depends whether or not it's doing its own sensing. So if you have one that, that determines how hot the water's gotten, then it's done a little sensing and changes the actions. Um, these are actually really popular, too. They've done better than any other sort of autonomous, intelligent uh, system that people tried to sell into the houses so far. It's just the Roomba, the little thing that goes around and, and vacuums the, the house. Now, these, these things here, this is like another one like that, are selling really big in Japan, and they don't do much of anything. They sit there, and they, may, they maybe make little noises or purr or, or, or talk nonsense, um, and that's it. Um, but they often have emotional systems built in uh, be, to make them a little more interesting again. And the idea is that they help, they, they help uh, uh, Japan has a very serious issue with uh, much smaller numbers of young people than old people, so that they, you, they're, they're there to help uh, your parents stay happy while you're out working uh, salary man hours. Uh, that's the theory. And of course, these are some toys that you may or may not have known people that they bought. I believe they've gone... Sony stopped selling these because they didn't sell enough of them, but I certainly have seen a lot of these. Have you guys seen any of these little ibos, the little robot dogs? Right. So again, these had systems built into them that people said were supposed to be emotions. They weren't necessarily used in the same sort of core intelligence way that I described in the previous work that we're doing here at Bath. Um, so again, this is why I was worried about... I hope you can see this. So I want you to think about... 
what, think about what this robot is doing. Why, why are emotions built into this robot? Not quite. Oh my gosh, it's, it's a surprise. That's a red button. Now all the buttons are on. Okay, this robot, this movie actually goes on for like 20 minutes. <laughs> but. <laughs> And, and the thing is, what she shows is she's taught the robot this thing, and then she brings out a blue button and whatever, it's generalized. But the point is that that learning system is relatively simple. The hard part was building this robot and having it talk to the person, right? But when you're trying to become famous and you're trying to you know, get people to fund your robot, you make it look like the robot is really smart by doing this dumb thing, right? And what's, what was actually smart was that incredible interaction the robot had with the, with the woman, right? That was the hard thing, and she probably spent years building that, and then she published her papers about, oh, look, it'll push the right buttons, right? That's unfortunately the way it is in AI. People don't believe what's hard. I'm being very honest with you when I tell you, like, oh, this is emotions, right? But the, um, most people just, you know, forget it. We're not going to try to convince people that. We'll just, we'll just do something they think is smart when their two-year-old does it, all right? Two-year-olds are amazing. They have huge brains. I'm not saying two-year-olds aren't smart, but one of the hard things is, you know, talking, right? These sequential tasks are things humans aren't good at, and we have to work very hard. And so well, that's, I think that's part of the reason we're very impressed when a computer talks to us. I'm like, wow, because that was so hard for a person, right? But the computer can't do that stuff normally. It can't do these things like catch a ball, right? Recognize people. These are the things that turn out to be really hard, and our whole brains are set at dealing with that kind of problem. That's what mo that's, that was what it was originally built for. <laughs> All right, so this is another reason you might want emotions for your robot. So I already gave you one uh, reason earlier, which is this core organizing uh, principle. Uh, but this is a second problem. It's just is that in order to interact with each other, we have to read each other's emotions. And basically, if we're going to deal with a robot in the house, it has to at least pretend it has the same emotions. It has to signal what it wants to do with emotional signals, all right? Now, this might be um, fake. It might be that, uh, you know, you didn't make it as the core organizing principle. Um, I didn't show you this with Emmanuel Tengiz dissertation, but because he was concerned to be able to make all kinds of videos, he put both real, real and fake emotions in it. So that so if you can get your head around that, it was an artificial agent with both real and fake emotions. And both, there's a whole study of how we can tell the difference. There's, we make fake smiles. And you can look at animation or cartoons and see that was a fake smile, that was a real smile. So it was to look real and fake, but also the way it was generated was different. So you would make a fake smile if you know that it's socially appropriate. And you could mark up a script and say, this is where you better smile because you're supposed to be selling something right now or whatever. 
So we might, you know, I don't remember, actually, I, I should read the dissertation again. If Leonardo, that was Leonardo the robot, incidentally. Uh, if Leonardo uh, only had fake emotions, or if Leonardo actually was using those as a co-organizing principle, it was behaving so reliably that my suspicion was that the emotions were just icing. They were just icing on the top of the cake when it said, okay, now is when I have to interact. I better make it look like I'm surprised. Okay. And that's actually the dominant thing you see in systems. I, I want to remind you of, uh, actually, I see uh, Robert Orfwood out here. I, I, didn't sp I almost put your name on the slide. I, I instead, I put uh, by me. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but anyway, uh, th this is something that, that, uh, that, that I did in, in collaboration with a couple people. Uh, Jim Edwardson at uh, Newcastle got me involved in this in the first place, but it turns out we do it really well here in Bath at the Bath Institute of Medical Engineering. Um, so if you have a problem where you have a, 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 someone you love that has dementia and you're the primary caregiver, you can get extremely tired of telling them certain kinds of things hundreds of times a day. So what you might do instead is you might want to have, again, a robot which is an intelligent home that will tell them instead. So that's the, uh, if you see there, when the person's trying to go out the door, the, the home says, it's two in the morning, did you really want to go out the door? Maybe you were going towards the bathroom and you forgot, right? Um, but, and that works really well. Uh, um, uh, Professor Orpwood told me this, uh, that, that this works really well for a while if you put in a recording, say, of someone that the, the person trusts, the voice of their daughter or something. But eventually they just stop hearing it. Even if you have dementia and you have trouble remembering things that just happened, you still learn. You still learn things. And so you, you uh, eventually do what we call in psychology habituating. You just don't hear it if it's exactly the same thing again. And so that was uh, what Jim Edwardson uh, spotted when he saw me talking about a manual system. He said, well, um, why don't we get your system to do the, to do the repetitive work? Um, but now that you guys have this nice emotional system, maybe that will make it not so repetitive. Um, he was really wanting us to, to fix this so it was a little less scary looking. So it'd have hair and stuff like that. And he wanted to make it customizable. We haven't got that work funded, which is a shame. We're, and it might still happen. I'm, I, I'm young. I'm youngish. <laughs> I have another 20 years. Like, I'm, and we might still do this at some point. But we've, I say ongoing. It means not currently funded work uh, with, with the Bath Institute of Medical Engineering. But hopefully this will, this will be coming. And a lot of people are working on this kind of problem. All right. There's also some robots, that, and I, I already talked about this in the Japanese context. This, this is, in fact, a Japanese robot, but it, I, I took this uh, video with my iPhone in a, in a meeting. I was invited to come talk about, actually, ethics, which are, you're going to see the slides from that meeting in just a minute. Um, but anyway, uh, this, is not, this is not an elderly person. This is a little boy, uh, and uh, I think it was a boy. Um, and we're in Denmark, and here's the seal robot. I'll, I'll turn this thing on. So, literally, that's from the website for the robot, the, the, the robot seal healing pet. And what they're claiming is that this is a medical device, and that's why they can charge 7,000 pounds for it. And, and it should go into institutions where there's people who are withdrawn, they're isolated, and that they'll open up because they finally have something to hug. It's actually kind of sad. Uh, in uh, medical institutions, you can't force the nurses to uh, you know, hug everybody all the time or whatever. So now you have something that's not in charge of you. It's really you're in charge of it. That can make people happier or whatever. 
Uh, let's just say the, uh, you can see the little boy is more fascinated by the iPhone than by the, uh, oh, you can't really see because it's too dark. Well, anyway, he's looking at me more than he's looking at this thing. He's not blown away. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I have seen some footage of at least some patients that thought it was cool. We don't really know the statistics on it because it's the kind of thing a company doesn't want to tell you. But some people are trying to do some serious research about this. Um, but anyway, as I said, it's, it's seen, applications are seen into child and elderly and, and other kinds of bonding issues, but not necessarily at the age extremes, right in the middle of life if you've, if you've really had a bad life. Uh, it might be useful to have something like this. But I think that leads us nicely into the final part of my talk, which is about the ethical considerations. So how do we feel about that? How do we feel about uh, supplementing or replacing nurse, nurse workers um, with furry robots, furry emotional robots? Um, generally speaking, and I think uh, we, I was actually invited to a meeting by the EPSRC uh, about ethics and robots, and, and we're, there's supposed to be an announcement next week. I mean, this was like in December, but they, the EPSRC were a little freaked out by our conclusion. So there, there's supposed to be a uh, big announcement about what British uh, uh, ethics and AI people, experts, think about robots. But... Basically, everyone that they invited felt this way, and we're, we're, we're waiting to see if the other robot workers are willing to say the same thing. So we, there's some places where we see them as being very useful, and this isn't the only thing we talked about, but, and there's other places where we don't like the idea. So we actually see them as something that would enhance, if they're a tool that helps enhance the experience in an institution, but you don't cut down the number of nurses, or, um, if they're a, uh, as I said, if it helps it, if it helps make, uh, if, you, if you have someone that you love who has dementia and they're driving you crazy by asking the same question 200 times in one day, if you can get rid of that driving craziness by the robot, then the true care and love can come from the person more easily, the person who wants to, to be helping. So that's the ideal that roboticists have when they get into this field. Um, I'm, so I'm going to go and uh, make kind of a radical claim about, uh, and this is me, this wasn't the consensus, this is actually one of my papers from a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2010. It was a chapter in a book about robot companions by York, York Wilkes, who was the one who organized it all. Um, so I would say that basically robots are things we build to serve us. They are not things that we build to take over the world. Um, in fact, since they're servants that we own, they're basically slaves. Um, and so, yeah, that's the title of, I, I know there's like really small print on here. It's because I'll put the slides online. If you want to see them, then you can look up the full references. It's not so you can see them from the background. Um, but anyway, we build robots. We determine their goals, either directly or also by specifying how they can acquire the goals. So with the Leonardo video I showed you there, people were able to teach the robot how to do something or how to then want to do something, right, in response to what she said. Andrea uh, Thomas said, so, uh, right, so in the, even in the case where they acquire their own goals, we're the ones who decide how they acquire their own goals. So ultimately, we're responsible, all right? Now, when I say this, when I say robots, and there are people, there are robotic, famous roboticists, but also just people that, you know, come to dinner, that um, random people, <laughs> okay, not totally random people come to my house for dinner, but anyway, uh, they say, oh, you believe this, you, you don't understand AI. You haven't seen AI the movie, right? You, or you haven't seen Blade Runner or something. I, 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 I love robots. I, oh, you can't see the pictures. This is terrible. <laughs> well, anyway, these are great robots. This was a, a, a something I did in, in uh, Italy. 
But anyway, th th this isn't my robot. I was just reviewing it for the European Commission. But you know, I, I love this stuff. I took all these pictures. Some people think these pictures are creepy, but I think it's really cute. And I feel really sad for it when it's having, this is sort of field surgery. One of its cables broke, and they had to fix it right there. Um, so I have great empathy for the, the, the robot having its cable fixed, right? So I understand the emotional engagement with robots, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a fundamental difference between robots and, and children. And I, I'm sorry for this incredible brutality of this picture, because here's the robot. There's three robots in a row being built, and then here's you know, this really cute little girl. <laughs> right? But basically, like I said, this is fundamentally different relationship between us and things that have evolved um, and, 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 and us and things that we are solely responsible for the way that they think. So even a child that you've had, you don't determine exactly how it thinks, right? The robot, we're the ones who, who decided the goals. So there's some, as I say, corollaries. Uh, we as academics, as policymakers, as voters, as manufacturers, ought to make sure that we as humans don't have obligations to robots. Robots are there to help us, all right? And we can do things like that even if the robot becomes something we really like because of its memory or its creativity. We can just make sure it's backed up. All right? That's something you can't do with a person. Back it up to disk. You can do it real time in Wi-Fi all the time. Um, we also shouldn't deceive people at misallocating resources. This is the thing that was controversial. Again, this, this is my own work from a couple of years ago. But uh, we had talk conversations, and this is what the EPSRC is waiting <laughs> to get consensus on before we make the announcement. Um, we don't want to deceive people into misallocating resources to robots, even if it makes us money or wins us votes. All right? And resources aren't just money. Of course, you could buy the, the people. There's dolls like this, right? You really want to buy your dolly a better, you know, a $50 dress. Uh, did you guys have a doll like this? There, it was a big trendy thing 10 years ago that was called the American Girl Dolls. And there was like all these expensive dresses you had to buy. Right? But it's not just about money. It's about time. It's about attention. And, and uh, personal care, the, the time, uh, those IVOs, when they first came out, at least in uh, Japan, the instruction set said, your IVO can learn. And if you teach it properly, it will be really interesting and a great toy. And if you find your IVO boring, it's because you didn't teach it properly. <laughs> all right? So first of all, they're telling you if you're dissatisfied with the product you bought, it's your own fault. And secondly, they're telling you that you need to invest your time into building, the, into training the thing, or you're, or you're betraying it somehow. All right? So why, I don't know how many of you think that I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> if, if I was in a room of geeky Americans, they might be more offended by this. I, but I don't know uh, uh, how you guys are feeling. You'll tell me during Q&A. But if you thought that this was not a bad, that was a bad idea, nobody should be a slave, not even a robot. A robot isn't somebody, but anyway. This is, uh, one reason might be because you have seen these wonderfully engaging movies um, that, that made you have sympathy for, for the robots. And I love science fiction too. I totally love science fiction. I wanted to be Susan Calvin when I grew up, and maybe I am, robot psychologist, uh, Isaac Asimov's robot psychologist. Anyway, but the, the point is that it takes the alien perspective to help us examine ourselves. So, um, you know, Spock and Data, they're both things that we use to say, what is it to be human? If we take some part out of being human, are we still human? What is it about ourselves that we value? Very interesting, important questions philosophically for the humanities and everything. But it's a part of fiction. It's a part of how we examine ourselves. It doesn't actually tell us about real robots. All right? Another reason you might not want to, which is totally different, is liability. All right, so I hope you guys recognize that. Uh, Angela Merkel there. You might say that uh, Schwarzenegger here is, uh, he's sort of, 
Okay, he's in his Terminator roles. That's sort of sci-fi, but I, he's, he's supposed to be in the politician page uh, here. <laughs> he's, anyway, um, the point is that uh, since 2008, this is something Noel Sharkey, Professor Noel Sharkey of uh, Sheffield, has been going around talking about recently. There's actually more robots in Iraq than non-American coalition forces. No offense to the British. We appreciate that you sent like, more people than anybody else did. But it, it was never really a coalition in a way. It was, it was something that was a weird American thing. But anyway, there's, it, there are a lot of robots. There are still a lot of British people. Or Sorry, has Britain totally withdrawn? I've forgotten. No, there's still some in. But even back when there were like 9,000 British forces, there were more than 9,000 robots. All right? So there's a lot of robots. And as you all know, you're hearing about the drones and things. There's more and more of these things. And I got really, part of the reason I started publishing these papers a couple of years ago, I'd always been interested in the ethical issues, but a bunch of people started getting funded in America by the military to figure out how uh, to make the robot soldiers ethical. All right? Now, they said, we're not going to have any more my lives anymore. Okay, well, you know, nobody wants soldiers to go and rape and pillage, but at the same time, if the robot is ethical and then the robot kills a civilian, who's at fault? All right? And who would you like to be at fault? All right? If, if, you're, the, if you're the person in charge of the spin. So uh, I, uh, it's, it's, it's my, my microphone is picking up when I'm running movies, isn't it? So anyway, this is the last uh, fun robot movie. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> but so there's, there's big trade-offs here. And, and again, when York Volks organized the meeting that turned into that book, there was that guy, I, I've totally forgotten his name, I apologize, the guy who talks about sex robots. That guy was there, and he, he huh? Levy. Levy, yeah. And, and, uh, and he, was, he was saying, uh, you guys, because there was a few people that were sort of like, no, no robots, whatever. And, and I'm, I'm more sort of in the middle than that. Um, but like Sherry Turkle, is there, I don't know if you've seen a... a Alone Together, her new book out about uh, over-reliance on technology. Um, not that I'm endorsing it, it's just another interesting perspective. But so she was the one extreme and Levy was the other extreme. Levy was saying, look, there are people that for really good medical reasons cannot form bonds with anybody else and how can you deny them the right for this? And this is the same kind of things that some of the people in Denmark were saying about those uh, seal puppet things. They're not puppets, they're robots, sorry. The seal robot things. Um, they were saying, this is really an important tool and it's important for the, for, the, for the patients. Although, honestly, some of them were also saying, it's a little weird that the patients think they're real. They don't understand it's a robot. Um, and it's this a kind of deception. Anyway, so that's, that's one side. On the other side, uh, if you're basically just a geek and you could maybe make friends if you worked harder at it, but you're a little shy, Having a, yet another thing like television, like computer games, and just having another reason to stay home, and even more, uh, making being at home alone even less bad, is that something that's actually going to help you or somebody else? I don't know. Maybe it does. Who's, who are we to tell somebody that they shouldn't just stay home if they want to? Um, this is basically a very hard problem, and I'm not going to tell you the answer. I'm just saying we need to think about it. We shouldn't just let you know, random things happen, realize we've made a huge mistake, and then try to fix it. It would be better if we think ahead, and we need to establish practice by actually going into the experiments and seeing how people do respond. And we have to establish public policy and make laws about it before we release uh, products like this into, um, 
out into wherever. So yeah, <laughs> just speaking of the Asimov thing, I, I, I uh, have three rules. Um, one is that people think AI is really special. They are especially afraid of uh, robots taking over the world. But you know, the, my, this thing can do math better than I can, and it's not taking over my pocket, right? The, it, the, I think people worry more about AI when they should be worrying about, as I said before, it's not the robot that killed the village, it's the person who decided to put the robot in the village that the robot then blew up, right? So they aren't thinking about the right ends of the problems. Or, as I just said, Whatever problem we have with these robot companions, maybe we already have those problems with televisions. We've had those for a long time. Um, I actually have a copy of Jane Addams uh, from the turn of the 1900, from around 1900. She was an amazing uh, socialist, uh, uh, humanitarian worker, liberal feminist uh, in Chicago. Um, and she's complaining about the amount of time that the theater wastes of young people, giving them crazy ideas. You know, when I was growing up, it was like, oh, why don't you go to the theater? You're wasting your time watching TV. And there was people who thought the radio. Now they think the radio is great, needs to be saved, but the radio used to be this thing. Anyway, we always worry about that, and maybe it's crazy. But all the problems we have with AI, we also have with other conventional artifacts. So it isn't particularly uh, scary. It is just interesting. And we should think about them. But I do think AI builders have a special obligation not to exploit people's ignorance because we are getting closer and closer to something that triggers the parts in our brain that says, oh, that's a human. That, takes, that deserves my attention. That's special. So although the real ethical issues are similar, the, the ones, there's this other issue as we build it about what people think the ethical issues are, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't play that up. Yeah, and the bottom line is robots aren't really your friends, OK? <laughs> All right. So that's uh, basically the end of the talk. I've talked about. What are emotions for? Could we build them in a robot? Would we want an emotional robot in our home? And are there ethical considerations? And I've sort of said, to make a quick summary, emotions help organize both individual intelligence and social behavior. And the social ones can even be fake, and it still helps us to make society go and to be polite. And we can build things that work similarly, both as the organizing kind and as the social kind, into a robot. Um, Emotional robots might help us in our homes. They might entertain us. They might get work done. They might uh, help us uh, help ourselves. But we need to. Hello. There we go. But we have to think about their appropriate role, and we have to decide what we want to do in our society. So I want to thank the people who uh, built the programs that you saw and also gave me that picture of that cute girl. <laughs> and I want to thank our funders who funded the research I showed you at University of Bath. So that's it. Thank you.